the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. They don't even believe in the resurrection, but they're asking Jesus a question about the resurrection. Do you see the hypocrisy in all of this, okay? It would be like somebody today asking, you know, how much money really is in a pot of gold at the bottom of the rainbow? You don't really believe that there's a pot of gold at the bottom of the rainbow, so why are you asking the question? That's the way the Sadducees are working here. They don't even believe in the resurrection. Why are they asking the question? Because they're just trying to trap Jesus. The religious leaders are at it again in today's message. Pastor Gary will share yet another question they asked Jesus in an attempt to trap him and accuse him of something. But how can you tell their intentions are false? Pastor Gary will remind you that these Sadducees, a sect of leadership in Israel, didn't believe in what they were asking about. They didn't think resurrection was possible, yet they're questioning the Son of God about it. But don't worry. Jesus sees through their hypocrisy. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 20 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's go to Luke chapter 20. We're going to Uh, Lord willing, finish out chapter 20 and maybe even get through chapter 21. We'll see as time goes. Uh, Let me give you kind of the background working up to where we left off. We left off right at verse 27, uh, and then I'll read the section from verse 27 down through verse 40. But again, this is the last week of Jesus' life. Things are rapidly um, transitioning here in the last couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus has already ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, what we call Palm Sunday, back in chapter 19. So triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He knows the crosses before him. He has told his disciples in advance that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, crucified, three days later rise from the dead. This is kind of, you know, incomprehensible to them, so they're not grasping all of this. Uh, For the meantime, the people, the crowds who see him come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday are very enthralled, very excited. They think he has come to rescue them from the hands of the oppressive Romans, Jesus came to do much more than that. He came to die on a cross to deliver us from a greater oppression than Rome, but to deliver us from the greatest oppression of sin and death. But this is 
they haven't grasped this. They, they are hailing him as Messiah. They're quoting Psalm 118. They're, they're, John's gospel says they're waving palm branches. Thus we get that term Palm Sunday. And then what happens here in this final week leading up to the cross is Jesus will go to the Mount of Olives at night to sleep. But during the daytime, he comes back to the temple court areas and he teaches Again, this is Passover, so there are, uh, now according to Josephus, if you count the number of sacrifices, uh, there is an indication that there are over a couple of million Jews who have now assembled here in Jerusalem on feast day, and as a result, lodging is pretty scarce. That's why Jesus is sleeping at night on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. He's just, you know, finding lodging under the trees there with his disciples. But during the day, he comes back into the temple court areas, and he teaches I mean, besides the fact that we know and understand that he's Messiah, he was regarded at least as a rabbi in those days by most, and they loved to listen to the rabbis just sitting there in the courtyard area as the rabbis would teach. So that was custom. Jesus would have been among many rabbis who were, uh, you know, just kind of spread out among the temple court areas and teaching, and people would just come and listen and, and move on to another rabbi. So this is very customary. Now, the thing with Jesus, though, different from the other rabbis, is that Jesus had his group of antagonists, he had his group of skeptics, he had his group that wanted to always discredit him, and they're constantly drawing him into controversy. Uh, so, for example, in chapter 20, we talked about already how they question his authority, who gives you the right to do these things. And then uh, later in chapter 20, we talked about last week, they try to trap him in regards to taxes. You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They wanted him to either, you know, pick sides. If he says, yeah, pay your taxes, then he's going to be seen as this friend of Rome. If he says, don't pay taxes, he's going to be seen as somebody who's, you know, seditious and trying to overthrow Roman government by his words. So Jesus, with incredible wisdom and incredible tact, you know, the whole thing that we studied last week. Well, show me a coin whose inscription is it, whose image. All right, it's Caesar's. Okay, great. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Give unto God's what is God's. And we ended there last week with the idea that really what he's saying is deeper than, hey, you know, give your money to the government because FDR is on a dime. You know, he's, he's basically, and, and he's not comparing to just be really generous givers in the house of the Lord, although I've heard that text used to uh, try to manipulate people to give more. But in reality, what he's saying is, whose image bears the image of God? And the answer is, you and I do, because we're created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, pay your taxes, do what you need to do there, but give yourselves unto God. Because you and I bear the image of our Creator. We're created in the image and likeness of our Creator. So that's where we left off. Uh, they're still not satisfied here. They still come to Him to test Him in His words. And now we come to a group of Sadducees here. Verse 27. Let me read down through verse 40. Uh, so th- this is the same kind of you know attitude here. Th- these folks are trying to just discredit Jesus. They're they're trying to drag him into controversy. So here we go, verse twenty-seven. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? 
Okay, that's the question. And then Jesus answers. Verse 34. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. And then verse 39 says, Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Okay? All right, here's some questions for you, okay? If a chronic liar tells you that he is a chronic liar, do you believe him? If it's zero degrees outside today and it's supposed to be twice as cold tomorrow, how cold is it going to be? If a book about failures doesn't sell, is it a success? If people from Poland are called Poles, why aren't people from Holland called holes? Now just think about it. If you get into a taxi and the taxi driver started driving backwards, would the driver end up owing you money? If knees were backwards, what would chairs look like? Now, I know those are silly questions. I just illustrate the fact that that's how silly it's happening right here. These Sadducees are being completely, well, for you note takers, write it down. These Sadducees, the question that they're asking, it's both hypothetical and hypocritical. Okay, they're posing this ridiculous question to Jesus. Here's the question. Let's say that there's this lady, she's married to a man. The man dies, and his brother then has to marry the wife, and then that guy dies, and then a third brother marries, and then he dies. Fourth brother dies, fifth brother, same thing all the way down. Seven brothers marry the same woman. They all die. Now, in the resurrection, Lord, whose wife will she be? Now, see, if I were being asked the question, I would respond by saying, we need to call CSI right here. Because something's wrong here. You got one wife who's surviving seven husbands. We need to check for a little arsenic or a little antifreeze in a system somewhere. Because something ain't right here. It's called a black widow. But anyway... What's happening here is a hypothetical and hypocritical situation. Now, first of all, why is it so hypothetical? Hypothetical because uh, the odds of this happening are a million to one. This situation they described would never happen, and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why it's both hypothetical and hypocritical. I mean, what would be the odds that one woman would marry a man and then all other the brothers, including seven brothers, would die and she is left. So the whole thing is a farce. But listen, the reason for their question is actually rooted in Scripture. Because notice that they said there in verse 28, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. And there was built in the Mosaic law, a clause for the protection of women. Because in those days in particular, if a woman was widowed, it was much more difficult for her to survive. 
than it is, say, for today. Although it's still difficult, you can imagine much more difficult in those days. So in the Mosaic law, the way it worked was, if there's a man married to a woman, the man dies, and he has a brother of maritable age who's not married, he is to marry her so that the namesake can stay within, within the family line. You can have children still within the family line, and you carry on the brother's name. This is out of Deuteronomy chapter 25. You don't need to turn, but this is what it says. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 6. If brothers are living together... And one of them dies without a son. His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And the interesting thing is in the rest of the passage, if the woman's husband died... She would then go to his brother, who was of maritable age, and say, hey, you need to marry me now. Your brother died. Now, he could refuse. If he refused, she was to go to the elders, communicate this to the elders of the town. Hey, my deceased husband's brother doesn't want to marry me. And then the elders would go to him and convince him, you need to marry her. It's part of the Mosaic law. If he still refused... The Bible says that then the woman would go to that man, the widow, she would go to that man who refused to marry her, demand that he take off one of his shoes, take one of his shoes and spit in his face. Isn't that kind? That's the way it went down. That's the way it rolled back in the day. Take off your shoe, because then he'd walk around shoe, you know, one shoe less, and then people would know that, you know, he's disgraced in Israel. So that was a way of, you know, disgracing him and the spitting in his face. But this was put in here, it was built in as a way to protect widows so that they wouldn't become uh, destitute. Now, they make up this whole hypothetical scene here, okay? And it's, in addition to being hypothetical, it's hypocritical. The reason it's hypocritical is because, look again at verse 27, where it tells us right off the bat that some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. So listen, they don't even believe in the resurrection, but they're asking Jesus a question about the resurrection. Do you see the hypocrisy in all of this? Okay, It would be like somebody today asking, you know, how much money really is in a pot of gold at the bottom of a rainbow. You don't really believe that there's a pot of gold at the bottom of a rainbow, so why are you asking the question? That's the way the Sadducees are working here. They don't even believe in the resurrection. Why are they asking the question? Because they're just trying to trap Jesus. So they're hypocritical, and it's hypothetical at the same time. Let me just give you a quick background on the Sadducees. They were a Jewish sect, like the Pharisees, But they were, the Sadducees, even more strict in their, and narrow in their interpretation of Scripture. They only embraced the first five books of the law, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they embraced of the Old Testament Scriptures. And because the subject of the resurrection is not readily found in the first five books, they reject it. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They just believed you die and you die, and that's it. But having said that, the Pharisees, for example, a different sect who embraced all of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament scriptures, there are other plenty of verses in the Bible that actually in the Old Testament talk about the resurrection of the dead. I'll give you a few verses, for example, in Job 19, verses 25 to 27, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, 
and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And so Job wrote about the resurrection. David in Psalm 16, verses 9 through 10, he said, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Daniel said in Daniel 12, verse 2, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So there are many verses in the Old Testament that actually talk about the resurrection from the dead, but because the Sadducees did not believe in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures as reliable, authoritative, except for the first five books, they didn't believe in the, in the resurrection from the dead. And, and thus, you know, you, many of you have heard this, but that's why you can remember them, because they're so sad, you see. They had no hope in the resurrection of the dead. So they were the aristocratic group of Jews. Uh, the high priest of the Sanhedrin uh, was always a Sadducee. Um, and so that's this group here. Uh, asking Jesus this hypothetical and hypocritical question because they don't even believe uh, in what they're asking. Now, Jesus replies. And I think it's interesting here because he could have said to them, guys, you don't even believe in the resurrection, so why are you even asking me this ridiculous question? He doesn't use it as an opportunity to correct. He uses it as an opportunity to instruct. And we get the benefit of his instruction. Because what he's going to tell us here is something, in his response to them, he's basically going to tell us something about the age to come. He's going to talk here in terms of the kingdom age. And this applies to us. So we need to hear what he's saying here. Notice again, he says in verse 34, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, okay, in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. Now, in the margin of your Bible, if some of you, if you want to mark down these verses, Mark 12, 24, and Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29. Mark 12, 24, and Matthew twenty two twenty nine, And the reason I give you those two verses is because when Matthew and Mark record this conversation, this same story, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, both of them say that Jesus started the response by saying these words, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he goes on to say what Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record here about angels and marriage and the age to come. But it's interesting because he first sets them straight by saying, the reason you're in error because you don't know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. And error emanates from a lack of understanding about the truth of scripture. All error, all theological, biblical, doctrinal error emanates from a lack of understanding what the scriptures have to say. So we need to know the whole counsel of God's word so we can be thoroughly equipped in our faith. These guys here, the Sadducees, just simply did not know the scriptures, and in large part because they didn't embrace or believe most of them. Okay, So that's what he's dealing with here. Now, what happens here is that Jesus then says that in that age, meaning the kingdom age, and I'll define that in a minute, will be like the angels. 
And what he says here is, we'll be like the angels in two ways. Relationally, in that we will not marry, and eternally, in that we will not die. That's the comparison he makes here to angels. So there is the kingdom age to come, okay? When you and I die as believers in Jesus, our spirit separates from our body. Our body becomes dust again. Bible then says that one day we get a glorified body. So from the graves will arise, for Christians we're talking of, will rise a glorified body that is imperishable, similar to the body that Jesus had. We shall be like him. And uh, that glorified body uh, will never perish, never die, never decay again. Never get fat, never get old, never get any of that. All right? It's going to be a glorious day, right? Amen? amen. If you didn't say amen, it's because you're too young <laughs> to appreciate that truth. But anyhow, um, he compares this to angels here. Uh, and in the kingdom age, which is when Christ returns and the saints will come and rule and reign with him, Eternity looks like this, that we will be like the angels in in these two ways, relationally and eternally. So the first thing that he compares us to is the idea of marriage. Because again, he's answering their question, like, well, whose wife will this woman be, seeing how she's been married to seven guys and she's outlived all seven guys? And he sets them straight. He says, first of all, there's not marriage like, like we think of it on earth. There won't be marriage in heaven. There will not be marriage in the age to come, okay, in the kingdom age. Now, that might be very depressing to some of you, and that might be a relief to some of you. I don't know. I don't really want to know. I don't want to ask for a show of hands on that one. Uh, but, but the truth is there is no marriage in heaven. Now, you know, you will know each other, okay? We will know even as we are fully known. Uh, you know, sometimes people are concerned, well, I know my loved ones in heaven. Listen, think of heaven as magnified of everything that is pure and right and, and honorable here. I know there's not much now, but in terms of like what you know now, you're not going to be dumber then. All right. You're going to be more enlightened then. Okay. You're not, you're not just joyful a little bit then compared to here. You're more joyful. So everything is accentuated in heaven that is good and right and noble and true. So you know each other now, you will know each other then. But you will, if you're married now, you will not be in that kind of a relationship then because Jesus says we'll be like the angels and the angels aren't married. What he's basically saying is, look, when we get around the throne of God, we will not be known by any other status except children of God. That's it. We will only be known as God's children. You know how it is, some of you maybe who are single, and you know how maybe a few friends are getting together and like a few couple of married couples and you, and you feel kind of that a little bit of sense of awkwardness, you know, because, you know, here are these couples and then it's me and, and it's the awkwardness is on, you know, marital status. Or, you know, I, I hear from time to time couples maybe, for example, having trouble uh, getting pregnant and then they go to the park and, and then they see other young couples swinging their kids and it's painful. It's difficult because, you know, we identify with are we single? Are we married? Do we have kids? Or are we not? You know, and, and those status kinds of things that are just the reality of the way we identify ourselves can sometimes be awkward on earth, it can be difficult. It can sometimes make you feel like odd man out or odd woman out, you know, and, and so that kind of connection is sometimes, you know, difficult on earth. All of that gets removed in heaven. 
That's one of the reasons why, you know, God is saying here, look, no marriage, no given in marriage. We're going to be like the angels. There's not going to be any status. It's all known as one kind of status. We are all children of God. That's why he says there in the middle of verse 36, they are God's children. They are God's children. That's how we will be known. And so we will relate to each other differently. You know, my wife now is always going to be my sister in Christ, now and then. Uh, But we won't be married the way that we, you know, enjoy marriage now. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection. You know